teaching from the Buddha. Long have you experienced the death of a loved one, loss in regard to relatives, loss of wealth, loss with regard to disease. As you turn through the wheel of samsara, your tears of grief are greater than the four oceans. Why is that? Inconceivable is the beginning of samsara. Beginningless is ignorance and craving. Long have you suffered dukkha, pain and loss, swelling the cemeteries. Long enough to be disenchanted with all sankara, all fabricated things. Long enough to become dispassionate, to be released. This experience of samsara, this very powerful teaching that the Buddha is pointing to, is with us all the time, um, mostly. It's uh, that uh, deeper sense of uh, uncertainty, of not really landing, of looking, of seeking, of wandering on of being compelled and propelled by a a sense of looking for something, finding, trying to find a home, and not really ever landing in that home. And so this quote, the Buddha said, endless is the rounds of samsara. So never, there's never a beginning and there's never an end to it. There's never a beginning of ignorance and craving and there's never an end to it. In terms of um, when the mind is caught in that mode and through that momentum that goes through, according to the Buddha's teaching, that craving and that ignorance, the karma generated from that goes through birth after birth. I remember once um, when I was contemplating these things as a young nun, it was this kind of contemplation, not just as an intellectual, but as a really deeply felt reality that propelled me very much into the monastery, a great sense of loss of interest, really, in what everything else that was on, on offer. Um, didn't really see myself going for, you know, kinds of careers or marriage or all the sorts of things that my friends were doing at that time. I just felt very, uh, you know, very, a sense of deep weariness. And so um, when I first went to the monastery, I, I, I felt a great sense of relief. Uh, to be there in, in a way that was uh, focused, on the exploring and contemplating how to bring an end to this samsara, this this endlessness. And I, I remember one of the early jobs that we that we had when we first began. We were renovating an old rundown house, an old Victorian house, 
in West Sussex, in the hamlets of West Sussex. And that uh, required an enormous amount of work that the community did, we did ourselves, building and gardening and building the road and the whole place was an absolute um, tip. There were about 30 abandoned cars. The previous owner had never really cleaned it up in dozens of years. There were newspapers stacked everywhere from decades and um, you know the, everything was overgrown. So a perfect place for a monastery, really. <laughs> As Master Wa said, and you know, go where no one else wants to go. That's where you start your monastery. So you know, there's, so we'd have these long work days cleaning up. And I remember I was on the team that was uh, burning up some of the rubbish, the garbage that was left around, and the old wood, and just cleaning up the gardens. And, you know, at the time I was really contemplating this feeling of sangsara. And I actually had quite an infatuation for one of the monks, which wasn't really that kosher in the monastery. <laughs> so, you know, I was contemplating the energy. I was young, you know, 23 years old, sort of pretty natural kind of occurrence. So I was sort of contemplating the, the energy that was going with that, because that was the teaching, is to take everything back to the mind. So I was contemplating desire and lust and and longing and and you know just the way that the mind it really you know perhaps it wasn't so much about that one person because I noticed that energy would rove around and just look for someone to land on. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> it wasn't really a person; it'd land on a plate of food eventually. So this sort of this was the next best thing in a monastery. So I sort of like just contemplating this thirst, you know, this tanha, and throwing these this logs on the pyre, pile and this fire, just one log after another. And you know, I began to feel as I, I was looking into this fire, and I was I was in some sort of quite mindful state, really, just slightly altered state. You sort of live in this weird altered state in the monastery. It's like time would dissolve and. The world outside didn't really happen, and one was in some sort of other other realm. And as I started to look at and contemplating, I felt like these logs were my body, and then my bodies, and that this fire of craving was was like these bodies. And the more that I was trying to find a way of quenching this fire, the more bodies it was burning through. And so I got this feeling of this this endlessness of the the bodies that this this craving burns through. It never never quenches. It never never ends. And so how this the Buddha talks about this this feeling of endlessness of it all. And one of the fir- very first times I met Ajahn Chah, um, he had. Um, come to England, and I think the first time was 1977, and at that time I was living in a meditation community, and we were, well, we thought we were practicing meditation, I think we were trying our best um, to do what we thought was enlightenment practice, and um, we were arranging retreats, and, you know, we had a, a garden that we would grow, and, you know, we were young community and then one day there was a knock at the door and um, Ajahn Chah arrived with one of the senior monks they'd just arrived in Britain and I was quite surprised to see Ajahn Chah at the front door 
And apparently what had happened was that the senior monk um, was interested to show Ajahn Chah all these quaint English villages in which we lived in one of them. And so, you know, the next thing we know that we had Ajahn Chah sitting at our dining room table and offering him tea. And I, I was, I mean, Ajahn Chah had a real force of, you know, he was like a magnet. He'd walk in the room and he wasn't just an ordinary person walking in the room. There was, you know, my, I, when, he, when he first walked in the room, I found my body and I didn't really know about etiquette and bowing to monks and all of that. But I found my body just going down on the ground. It just felt like I had to, you know, it was completely body response. Um, and then you know, he, he just had this enormous presence uh, that, was, that was very attractive and also a little bit scary. You know, some sort of power that he had. And he sat at the table and we all sat around and we were actually quite excited that this master just sort of popped in for tea. And we put the kettle on and gave him a cup of tea. And um, I was sort of sitting next to him, and I didn't again know about etiquette that you're supposed to have distance, and especially in Thailand, and especially a master. I was just like right up next to him, like kind of glued to him, really. And he didn't mind; he, he wasn't that bothered. He he just was looking at this group of uh, young people, and I, he was quite amused. He always seemed to be amused by us, really. And as he looked round the table, he just and there was the monk was translating, and he just went "buamai," which in Thai means "Have you had enough yet?" And um, it was the, the way the question was asked and the way it landed in me. I I felt it wasn't just like you know, "Have you had enough of?" It was like "Have you had enough of sangsara?" It was a very deep question. And he asked it from a very deep place. "Have you had enough of experiences? How much more do you need?" to you know to to taste and uh and that's how i experienced it and i just felt going actually yes clearly i hadn't because i obviously went on to you know in the way that the mind grasps but at, but at some level <laughs> one thing after another you know on and on it goes but at some level there was a real because of the the magnetic power of his own awakened uh, presence there was a sort of break in the continuity of my the, my momentum, and it really spoke to me very deeply. This this what Ajahn Chah taught a lot was this this feeling of nibida, which is Buddha taught nibida, which means a sort of um, disenchantment. The things that enchant us um, have lost their fascination. We've lost their compulsion. We're not. They they seem like empty tinsel. You know, they don't they don't catch our attention anymore. And in in uh, I realised later and understood that in the, the Thai culture, that this feeling of nibida is actually considered quite a an evolved spiritual quality. And whereas in the West, it's almost like, well, what's wrong with you? Go shopping or. You know, you know, cheer as they say in England. You know, cheer up, love. <laughs> so it was. It wasn't a really acceptable emotion to have in the culture that I that I was brought up in. You had to sort of, you know, keep keep a st- stiff upper lip, chin up, and all that. So you know, just to 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 feel that none of this really interests me um, is a is a really important turning point to begin to turn the mind around, 
to contemplate, you know, what, is there anything else? Is there something deeper? Is there some other way of being here? Um, so it was one of the, the very first teachings, very direct teachings that I experienced from Ajahn Chah, which, which did sort of begin to knock me on another course, um, which uh, whetted my appetite for meditation and then eventually... Um, not so long down the road, uh, finding myself um, cutting all my hair off and turning up at the monastery and not leaving well, for 12 years. <laughs> I only went for an afternoon visit. <laughs> it was a long afternoon. So, but this, this is actually, you know, when we look at our culture and this endless um, fever to keep um, consuming and experiencing you know, the, the billion dollar industry that goes into perpetuating that uh, there has to be a moment when there's this nibida when it's like well how much more do we need and the irony of the, the more people have I've met for some you know some fabulously wealthy people and some of them put that to really good use and are wonderful citizens and then I've met some that it's never enough you know I was reading the other day that Jeff Bozos is it Bozos? Bezos Bezos I'm going to cancel my Amazon account that's the next thing I'm going Anyway, that he earns in nine seconds what one of his medium workers earns in a year. You know, what do you do with that? You know, and how much is enough? And so it's this, this, this insanity of, of consumption and the necessity to, to actually understand that however much we have, it doesn't resolve this deep ache, this deep primal longing to find our home, to return, to, um, you know, to, to leave this wheel of endless thirst and craving and longing and disappointment and anxiety and turbulence and to find a, a deeper a dwelling and abiding, deeper peace. And we wouldn't really know about that, that that was possible if it hadn't been for people like Ajahn Chah or the Buddha or these saints and sages and realized beings through the ages that actually demonstrate and give an example that there is a whole other way that is possible and it's a great gift to even come across some of these teachings or meet some of these presences or hear about and this, this there is another possibility is another way of being on this planet a very really other way, not just, you know, a momentary shift, but a really profound shift of realization. And that as the, 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 the real magic of the Buddha's teaching is that it's not just the way he taught it, not just for special people that have to be born in a certain caste, that have to be a certain gender or have to be from a certain time and space or culture, that this is a gift that the Buddha open-handedly gave to everyone. You know, that everyone had this potential. There's even a story when the Buddha was teaching one day and there's a vast assembly and they'd all gathered and there was food and there was a big sort of um, meeting as he was going to give a Dharma talk. 
And so, you know, and all the disciples are there, monks and nuns. And he's sitting there with his divine eye. He's sort of looking around to see who can, who can understand my message. Who's going to, you know, how to pitch. Because he, he would sometimes do that, apparently. Just look at the minds. He could really see and, you know, not necessarily was speaking to the whole. Sometimes he'd pitch a teaching in a way because he knew someone was really ripe. And they just need to hear something and that, you know, it would drop and land and they would get it. And so at the edge of this whole gathering was this outcast. His name was Super Buddha. I don't know why he was called Super Buddha. Maybe he was named that after he experienced his awakening on that day. He probably was called something else before. But anyway, Super Buddha the leper was sort of wandering around on the edge of this whole happening, looking for some food. He wasn't so interested in what, you know, what uh, Buddha was going to have to say, but he was, you know, he was just seeing what was available. But the Buddha realized that it was actually this guy that was going to get his teaching that day. So as it said in the suttas that he started, in a, he gave a teaching in a very graduated way, he started to talk about the benefits of renunciation, the benefits of sila and ethics, the, the pathways to heaven, to um, pleasant abiding through the practices. And then when he saw that the mind of Super Buddha was malleable and open, because Super Buddha was drawn in by the teaching and started listening, then he gave this teaching, as it said in the sutra, peculiar to all the Buddhas, which is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And it's this teaching that the Buddha said, um, you and I, through not understanding these four truths, have wandered endlessly through countless births. So he placed this teaching at the heart of his transmission. And so it's a really important teaching because it's a teaching about what we experience every day of our lives and what we experience every day is our lives, of our lives, which is this experience of dukkha, that we can actually use that experience as a doorway to liberation, to nibbana or freedom or peace, to the unconditioned. Um, and so it's not so much imagining what awakening is and trying to vault ourselves into some imagined state, but actually working through and being with what is right here and as it particularly what appears as the experience of dukkha to realize that's a doorway and not something wrong with us personally. Often we take that when there's this experience of dukkha it's like a personal failing. we, We very much personalize it's something wrong with me when I feel a, a sense of anxiety or suffering or discontent you know, whether it's the most coarse level, very extreme sense of anguish and, you know, profound grief and suffering, or whether it's even the very subtle dukkha, the sense of one translation of being duped means to be apart from the akash, the spacious or the perfect, that subtle sense of separative consciousness that we're sort of locked into this me and then we feel alienated subtly, and not even subtly, quite strongly from the, the, the web of life, as I was mentioning the other day. 
And that's a dukkha that we have. Separate, the sense of separateness. So when the, you know, when the Buddha decided how can he actually transmit what he had understood, his teaching, he realized eventually that this was actually the way that to try and open, um, when he first gave the teaching to his first former ascetics that he practiced with, that this was the way that they could perhaps understand what, he was, what his realization was on, from the night of his awakening when he saw, you know, through his three knowledges and saw all the many births that he had, all the many different cultures and foods and places and bodies and situations and storylines and narratives that he had lived through, and then all the many, many beings and where they land and how they appear, with the sort of flow of samsara and karma endlessly, so with his divine eye on the night of his awakening he can see this and then this great weariness with that and then seeing that all of this was constructed his third insight from this movement of identification this avidya pachya sankara which means the mind not knowing heart not knowing its true nature its unconditioned nature it leans into a sense of becoming and sort of steps and stands up on a formation, thought, feeling, perception, a moment of sensory consciousness, and it generates this sense of structure of self and me and patternings of the self. But this movement is this very, very fundamental core movement generates this whole experience then of birth. And then birth generates and sets the conditions for loss for death, for ending, beginnings and endings. That is basically the experience of samsara. So he saw through that, and as he said on the night of his awakening, that seeking but not finding that house builder, that thing that built the house of self, I traveled through countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever again, but house builder you have been seen. You shall not build this house again. Your rafters are broken down. Your ridge pole is demolished. My mind has attained the unformed nibbana and reached the end of every kind of craving. That was the utterance on his night of his awakening. He deconstructed the house of self, not to ever be constructed again. His mind realized its, its own nature, unconditioned nibbana. So in this, this, uh, but when his, when he actually, you know, this was a great moment of great radiancy, great liberation, and it's said that for six weeks, because of the bliss of the experience, he just sat staring at the Bodhi tree that had protected him through this great endeavor and this great battle on the night of his awakening. He just sat and gazed at the tree with great devotion, with eyes unblinking. I'm sure he must have blinked a few times, but, but this lovely feeling of the, of the devotion to nature was his first act. And then the calling of Mother Earth, when he said, who will believe me? No one will believe me. And then he realized, Mother Earth, she is my witness. She has witnessed all these births. She has seen me in all these different forms. She has been here from the beginning and at my end. You know, this is and this great devotion and calling on the witness of the the profound feminine, the, the the deep earth, deep nature, 
deep intelligence that's within nature, because there is a deep intelligence that far surpasses our cognitive mind, even though we don't think so. We think we are the clever ones. <laughs> We're in for a surprise. So that you know, he but he saw this great radiance, and then this uh, this guy walked past him and said, "Man, you look good. What's happened to you?" And, and the Buddha said, "I am the great all awakened Tathagata." And you know, and the guy says, "Well, who's your teacher? I have no teacher. I am self awakened. I did it myself." Something like that. I'm sort of paraphrasing. And, and, and the guy said, well, basically, we're good for you, and walked off. <laughs> and so it said that, you know, that was the teaching that didn't exactly quite get the right transmission. I'm sure it planted a seed in the guy, you know. I mean, the first guy to see the Buddha, you know, it's a shame he didn't quite get it, but <laughs> got something. But, but it did cause the Buddha to reflect there might be another way of making this teaching or trying to communicate what is actually impossible to really communicate you know because actually it was a statement not of his ego but of truth this is the truth of all of us but it doesn't come across well when you say you know who are you and you say i am the tatakata and the unborn the unconditioned uncreated i'm not going anywhere i've got no name you know you don't quite know what to do with that so, you know, when he sat with his first um, disciples, he became the first five disciples, he tried a different tack. And he said, there is this experience of dukkha, and dukkha needs to be understood. You know, it's a little bit of a come down, you know, but it is something that we can all relate to. There is this experience. It's not like the world is dukkha. Often people say, what do Buddhists believe? Buddhists believe it's all suffering. I've heard that a lot. It's like, oh God, you know, it sounds really miserable. You know? It was very articulated in particular that there is the experience of dukkha and dukkha needs to be, there's a, there's a statement of fact and then there's a statement of practice. And dukkha needs to be, there's some response that needs to happen in relationship to this everyday experience. You know, so it talks about what's called dukkha dukkha, which is the dukkha of just embodied, conditioned existence. You know, like my knee's hurting right now. That's a kind of a dukkha. Or I'm aging, that's definitely got its dukkha pieces. The other day I was bit down on a piece of chocolate and half my tooth went with it. And I was like, oh, there you go, aging teeth. Yeah, so, you know, death is dukkha. You know, loss, the grief of loss is dukkha. So these natural things, birth is dukkha. These things are inherent in the conditioned realm. So it's not to say the freedom of dukkha that there's not any pain or struggle or difficulty. There is dukkha dukkha. And then what's called dukkha viparinama, which is the sort of the fading of the pleasant, the impermanence, just that feeling. But then what the Buddha said, we can't, you know, there's some things you can't resolve. You know, you can't stop things being impermanent or the pleasant changing. But then this third sphere of dukkha, called avicca dukkha, is the dukkha that's generated from the mind itself. And it's this that the Buddha said that can be brought to an end. It generates this samsara, this endlessness, and in that endless wandering, the ongoing experience of dukkha that's being generated right here, right from the ignorance of the mind. 
the mind not understanding the nature of reality. Even a simple thing like it's impermanent. I mean, clearly we try to build empires to defy that basic truth. You know, so sure, it's lots of examples externally and internally of how the avijja, the not seeing clearly, generates this experience of dukkha. So, you know, as Ajahn Chah would often point to this, you know, as, as Ajahn Sumedho used to say, his, he would, in the monastic life, this teaching was actually the fulcrum around which our training occurred. So it was, it was very much a daily reflection. And so I got to really, really appreciate the profundity of it. And it's often one can say, oh, I've heard that, you know, what about emptiness and the esoteric teachings. But actually this is the most useful teaching, transportable teaching. So Ajahn Smeda was talking about one day he's sweeping in the monastery in Thailand and he's really, you know, his mind is complaining, you know, here I am. You know, got a master's degree from some university in America. Here I'm at the bottom of the pile of the novices and I've got to sweep leaves and what's the point of that? You know how the mind groans on and on and on. And, and uh, Jen Char kind of saw him being miserable and he came up and he said, oh, that's interesting. He said, is, is there dukkha in the, in the broom? <laughs> no. Is there dukkha in the leaves? No. In the path, no. Where is it? <laughs> Where's the problem? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so this, so this turning back. So it's usually when there's dukkha arising, we don't catch it. You know, we the mind projects it. Either projects it onto the self. You know, something wrong with me because I feel this, or poor me. You know, I'm, I'm, I. Let me tell you about it. There's no one that suffers like me. We can make a real project of it. And, you know, and that's true too. Or, you know, often we project it outside. It's that their fault. That happens a lot. It's because of that situation. And, and that may be true. But even so, even if we're in the most difficult situation, we can still resolve our reactivity around that, the reactivity that generates more suffering. Like um, Katie Sarah is using the example of Mr. Mandela in, you know, in prison for 27 years in a tiny cell. I'm sure most of us would have either gone completely crazy or got completely enraged. And yet this extraordinary man came out of that experience with enough consciousness to lift a whole country uh, for a while anyway and, and to demonstrate a quality of leadership on the, on the global level that was exceptional. Um, so, you know, there's this someone that really understood. He didn't maybe have it in the context of the Buddha's teaching, but really understood that it was possible to transform this experience of dukkha. So to be able to, first of all, this samadhi and this training of attention, the strength of that to be able to hold the attention to when dukkha arises and is felt, to be able to bring attention right there, what's happening here, and to tolerate that before we move into reactivity, into projection, denial, repression, 
um, blame and so on. Just to, this is dukkha, there's suffering here. And that's a very humble, humble thing to do actually. It's not an easy thing to do. But it's also very satisfying. Sometimes there's more dukkha not accepting dukkha. <laughs> you know, it's almost like the moment you go, oh, this is dukkha. There's almost a relief in it. There's almost that acceptance. You know, so it's very, very profound just to bow into. This is also why we do the bowing. It's not just a meaningless, it's a gesture of, as was one of the very, very first... In fact, the very first time I saw Ajahn Chah when he was before he came and had a cup of tea with us was when he came on a retreat we were sitting on as, um, in uh, a retreat centre in the UK. And he just walked into this retreat. There was about 70 of us, the Europeans, just sitting there after having done a 10-day Goenka retreat. Though in those days it wasn't called, it was the Ubarkin retreat. And um, he looked at all of this, and then we had this, there was a Buddha statue. We didn't really know, I didn't even know I was doing Buddhism, to tell you the truth. I don't think we were just doing this meditation. And so we saw this sort of thing, and we just stuck it in the corner. You know, it was a sort of a sacred object. It's just like, this is sort of Asian thing, you know. And Ajahn Chah came in the door, and he sort of, one of the first things he looked at was this Buddha, and he sort of looked and was like... So he went over and he got the Buddha and he put it in the, in the center and he got down and he bowed. And I'd never seen anyone bow. Um, so when he bowed and the way he bowed and the fullness and the, you know, it's like he took the whole room with him, I just felt this is the most perfect statement I've ever seen about how to be in life. This sense of just and so that's the feeling of there is dukkha. It's like, it's a real opening into, it's like uh, the willingness to feel with what is, what is difficult to be with. Not just because we want to suffer heedlessly, because we are approaching the experience of suffering with consciousness, not just unconsciously suffering like mad or stress. There is dukkha. And then, as Ajahn Chah would say in this, this second territory of the second truth, he would point to what is generating that right now? Do you feel dukkha? Where, where is it arising from? You know, is it something that's being done to you? And even if it is being done to you and it's difficult, where is the extra dukkha? Or you're sick or there's a difficult feeling? Where is the extra dukkha that we're creating in that moment? So Ajahn Chah would say, the wanting and the not wanting of the mind, or the, you know, the tanha, the craving and the aversions of the mind. You know, I don't want it to be like this. I want it to be another way. As our, another one of our monastic friends, and you may have heard this, Story, but I think it is actually very profound. When he was a young monk in Thailand, and he he was um, he had to go into Bangkok to get an operation on his knees, which meant um, he wouldn't be able to sit cross-legged, which was a big deal. It's part of his street cred. 
when you're in the monastery of the northeast of Thailand to be able to sit not on a cushion like this, God forbid, that's so much luxury, but on the concrete, on a tiny, thin piece of cloth in full lotus or at least cross-legged. You know, if you couldn't do that, then, you know, you weren't the real thing. So there he was in plaster cast and the prospects of sitting in a chair in the monastery and not being able to really do the whole monk thing was, you know, he was feeling very sorry for himself. So Ajahn Chah came to see him and he was sort of moaning and, and oh, Lung poor, you know, Lung poor, Ajahn Chah, venerable father, and Ajahn Smith leaning over him, well, yeah, Lung poor, shouldn't be like this, it shouldn't be like this, shouldn't be like this. And Ajahn Chah leaned over and said, well, if it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be like this. <laughs> And you know, and it, and it shouldn't be like this, should it? I mean, there are so many things that it shouldn't be like. We shouldn't be living on a planet that is burning up. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incomprehensible, overwhelming, indigestible, devastating reality mm-hmm. to to even get near. You know, there shouldn't be. You know these devastating ongoing wars. There shouldn't be these, the generation of division and hatred. You know, there's, there's, there's so much that is so painful for us to be with right now. And, and in a certain way, it's not that we have jeopardized our ability to survive as human civilization because we're burning up the planet and everything along with it. That's probably unprecedented in human history. It's not that the planet itself hasn't gone through billions of years, but all of the human greed and avarice and desire and power-seeking is an old story. And it shouldn't be like that. And it's not to say we won't do what we can to, as the Buddha did himself, to change the systems to generate a more equitable, free, compassionate world. But the heart of it, you know, the heart of samsara is this is how it is. You know, it shouldn't be like this, but this is how it is. And so when we apprehend dukkha, it's not to say before we quickly move to the solution, before we quickly try and get every piece of furniture in the right place so we feel happy, you know, to realize that gets really endless in itself. It's actually to recognize the teaching in it to say, to really feel with and deeply accept and open to this is dukkha, this is how it is. And then to see, as we start to see how the mind is constantly generating the dukkha. I don't like it, I don't want it, it should be different, I can't stand it, I've got to get rid of it, get rid of them, change it. You know, as we start to really, very deeply enter this territory and release, is this second noble truth, there is desire, there is aversion, and desire and aversion must be abandoned. This is the teaching, must be let go of. It's not to say that those energies can't be transformed, that's another piece of the teaching, but at the core, the Buddha, four noble truths, said when we apprehend the desires and versions of the mind, abandon them. And the more mindful we are, the more quickly we do that. 
Because if we're not mindful, we just actually suffer. That's about what it comes down to, <laughs> be mindful or, or suffer. So the suffering brings us to mindfulness and to, to investigate. And as we investigate, as we explore, that actually that the mind's constantly agitating, constantly should be different. Don't want it like this. As we start to release and abandon out of that, then there's a, a softening, an opening, a deep, deep acceptance, a deep allowing for the conditions to be as they are. This is the conditioned realm. And this is how it is. It's sansara, it has dukkha within it, it has imperfection. It doesn't really, it's perfectly manifesting as it is. All conditions are perfectly doing what they do, even those ones we deeply disapprove of. But in the deep acceptance of this conditioned realm and the abandonment of demanding that the conditions fulfill us, absolve us, complete us, um, or that we have to keep changing them or you know, somehow completely fix the world <laughs> and get it right. We'll never get it right. There'll never be an end of ignorance. You know, in that abandonment of that pushing and pulling of the mind, there is the recognition that begins to be the dawning of the nibbida, the relinquishment the disenchantment, the disidentification. is like the, the wheel is still turning, the stuff is still going, but the sense of self, the sense, the avijapachya, the, the ignorance of the mind not knowing its own nature, its own fullness, its own home, hooks into that wheel, identifies, moves in, gets spun, As that relinquishment and the non-grasping of the mind, the complete and utter allowing for it all to be as it is, the release of the demand for the conditions to be any other way, the body to be any other way, what's felt to be any other way, is the opening into a deeper dimension of being, the taste of peace, the taste of nibbana, the cooling, the, the un condition, the unborn, uncreated. So Buddha said, if it wasn't for the unborn, there would be no end to this sangsara. There would be no peace. There would be no freedom. So this niroda, as it's called, the third truth, the niroda, the relinquishment, the release and of course, there's a huge territory from the grasping of the mind to release. There's a huge journey that we take, moments and then phew, we're back, moments and we're back. And you know, so a patient process of, and it doesn't mean that we don't, you know, the, you know, it's like a misnomer that, you know, somehow when when there's the, the the release from dukkha and dukkha ends that they'll we'll just be like a sort of enlightened cucumber <laughs> or a stone you know like we'll be unresponsive i i used to think that's what it meant you know i used to think well, that doesn't sound very exciting you know you're just going to be like some sort of statue you never feel anything never respond you never you know but when i imagine chai was so dynamic 
You know, he was funny, he was fearless, he, he didn't need anything from anyone, and therefore he could be pretty blunt. <laughs> he didn't need you to like him or approve of you, and he was very challenging, but he also, he also was you know, really fun to be around and really you know, not so easy to be around, as you say, had this kind of um, challenge to him very edgy, but he also, like, if I think back when I first met him, I was just really young, and young woman, English girl, he could have, he could have just dismissed me, or she won't, you know, she's just a silly little girl, she won't understand what I'm saying, you know, I'm only going to go to the sort of important men in the room, but he didn't do that, he went straight into my heart, and just, he, he was like he wasn't seeing the package, it's just like he's, he's going to use whatever opportunity with whoever would listen to go to the core of his message, like, have you had enough, wake up, this is what you do. Whether you're an old lady, young lady, whatever, you know, if you were willing to listen and you were able to be there, then he didn't hold back. I thought that was a tremendous gift and a tremendous fearlessness that he he possessed. His, you know, his sort of, he, he called it his stab to the heart. Yeah, that he would definitely make sure you didn't forget him. <laughs> so it's not that when dukkha dissolves, or longing and grasping of the mind dissolves, that, that we're just going to somehow fizzle out. You know, as Ajahn Mahabur, another forest master, said, when dukkha is completely stopped, nothing remains. All that remains is entirely pure awareness. It's the purity of the citta of the heart. If you want, you can call it nibbana. But that's just another word, isn't it? It's just a, another concept. And that citta, that heart, isn't. It's not like we have to go and find that heart. That heart is the most real thing. If it wasn't for that jitter illuminating our experience now, we wouldn't actually be having this experience. That loom, the, the, the jitter, the knowing, aware, present, dimensionless, immovable tathagata is the, the reality of the recognition, the realization. And so the Buddha said, the third noble truth. The Nibbana, the peace, the undying, the ever-present, timeless jitta, here, now, that which is receiving, that which is listening, that which is always present, that which is knowing, has to be realized, recognized. It doesn't have to be attained, it doesn't have to be won, it doesn't have to be earned, it's your birthright. We just have to recognize this is the most real thing about us. But we can't see it as an object. We can't, you know, pin it up on the wall. We can only be that. And so that's why Ajahn Chah said, hearing about the Dharma, practicing the Dharma, studying the Dharma, that's good, that's one thing. But being Dharma, that's something entirely altogether different. But it's possible to be Dharma. That's what we are awakening into, being Dharma, 
being rooted in the intuitive, profound intelligence of the living Dharma as our refuge, as our abiding, as that which guides and responds to the conditions with perfect ease, perfect wisdom, perfect compassion. This is why we practice. It's not beyond us, it's within our reach. And to recognize each moment that we bring mindfulness, that we inquire, that we do what we're doing, that we're ripening that fruit of our own awakening, not only for ourselves, but for the benefit of all beings. This is the path of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.